Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, and especially their political and historical contexts, here on London's best radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm kicking off a three-part series on the cultural impact of the First World War in three European countries, the UK, and then Germany and France. We decided to exclude Russia, as our programme on the legacy of the October 1917 revolution covered that. You can find that show on our SoundCloud, along with our other previous programmes. We hope to cover the culture of fascist Italy in a future edition. This week, I'm joined by Charlotte Jones, teaching fellow in Victorian and modern literature at King's College London, to discuss the cultural legacy of the conflict in the United Kingdom, focusing on the written word, poetry, literature and memoir, although we will touch on film and television towards the end of the programme. Charlotte, welcome to Sweet 212. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. The Great War, as it was known before 1939, looms large in the UK's historical imaginary. It's been the subject of poems and paintings, novels and dramas, feature films and sitcoms, many of which are familiar to millions, from the verses sent home from the Western Front by members of the Lost Generation, to the final series of the BBC's historical sitcom Blackadder, Blackadder Goes Forth, broadcast in 1989. Over the last two decades, it feels as though the way the conflict is represented and recalled has changed dramatically. Remembrance Sunday services, which are always conducted with the presence of veterans until the last one, Harry Patch, died in 2009 at the age of 111, have become rather less sombre and rather more strident in tone, with insufficiently ostentatious displays of emotion being attacked by the right-wing press and its supporters, especially as they're perceived as coming from a left-wing anti-war position or an Irish Republican one. The causes of the war defy easy summary. Its consequences transform the UK's social fabric, with women's suffrage, the rise of Labour and the trade union movement, and the Labour Party supplanting the Liberals within the two-party system, and the partition of Ireland after the Irish War of Independence of 1919-21, all springing out of the First World War. Plenty of works have been made this year for the centenary of the armistice on the 11th of November 1918 by the likes of Jeremy Deller and Mira Kalix, as well as the Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson, whose new film They Shall Not Grow Old slightly adapts a line from Lawrence Binion's For the Fallen, one of the UK's best-known war poems, to present colourised footage from the Imperial War Museum's archives, combined with BBC interviews with Western Front veterans, recorded after the BBC was established in 1926. I want to start the show by going back to cultural works produced by the combatants themselves, which means giving a little historical context. The six-month Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 resulted in the unification of Germany, ratified by the Treaty of Frankfurt, under which Otto von Bismarck took the French border territories of Alsace and Lorraine for his newly unified nation. The emergence of Germany radically changed the European balance of power, giving encouragement to the various nationalisms that had taken root in Europe since the Napoleonic Wars, especially in Italy, which was also unified in 1871, 
and introducing a significant new player into the scramble for Africa, where the UK, France, Belgium, Portugal and the Netherlands were already competing for colonial gains. This imperialism fed a popular British patriotism and militarism, visible in the khaki election of autumn 1900, called by the Conservatives at a time when it was widely believed that the UK had won the war with the Boer settlers in South Africa, and the election ended with a Tory majority of 130. The Boer War exposed the fact that most of the UK's young men were not fit enough for what seemed increasingly like an inevitable battle with the Germans. 40% of volunteers were unfit for active service, and of the 11,000 who came to enlist in Manchester, 8,000 were turned away, and only 1,000 able to serve on the front lines. The Physical Deterioration Committee was established in 1904, and physical education in schools took a militaristic turn. As Britain's imperialist commitments continued to grow, and war was constantly in the news, the Liberal government, elected in 1906, realised that the health of young men, particularly those in the traditionally neglected working class, needed large-scale intervention, and they passed major reforms that became the basis of the 20th century welfare state. After the Agadir incident of 1911, when German troops in Morocco tried to test the Entente Cordiale, signed between the UK and France seven years earlier, conflict became far more likely. It was finally triggered by the July crisis of 1914. Russia promised to intervene in any war between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Serbia after the Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and Germany decided to attack Russia through Belgium to avoid fixed French defences. This brought the UK into war with Germany, ostensibly under the terms of the Treaty of London of 1839, in which the UK had formally recognised Belgium's independence and neutrality. The British government had expected a limited conflict of rapid movement, like that of the last major war on European soil, between France and Prussia. This war, as the popular press put it, would be over by Christmas. What they got was very different. A nightmarish four-year conflict fought in a new way with new technologies, introducing new sensations from shell shock to the fear of aerial bombardment that would have a profound and permanent effect on the United Kingdom's culture. Phew, so that's a very, very uh, quick um, kind of outline of the tensions that were manifest in um, in Europe and the kind of cultural memory that fed into into the war. Charlotte, I'd like to start by talking about um, the group which were closest to the Italian futurists. Um, the Italian futurists, of course, famous for their embrace of war, their leader, Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, wrote a manifesto called The World's uh, War, The World's Only Hygiene. Um, and the uh, the Vortices group in, um, in London was sort of uh, quite influenced by and also strongly reacted against the Italian futurists. So I'd like to sort of pick up our, our conversation uh, with the Vortices attitude to, to the war and how it changed. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about the vorticists and the futurists is that they bring into focus what really makes the First World War a watershed moment in um, the landscape of, of modern history, I suppose, which is that the dream of the machine, the, the kind of the, the whole romance of enlightenment ideas of rational progress and science and industrial technology, ideas that are 
enchanted the cultural imagination of the 19th century gave way to this this sort of horrendous cataclysm of horror i suppose is is one mild way of of putting it and it's 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 this industrialized mechanized aspect of the warfare that that i think is is so shocking about it and and what's so shocking is that that in the years before the war um the futurists have been venerating the machine and technology. So in 1909, Marinetti publishes this manifesto um, and it's on the front page of Le Figaro, which is a Parisian newspaper. Um, and in it, he, he has a line where he says, we will glorify war, the world's only hygiene, militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of freedom bringers, beautiful ideas worth dying for and scorn for woman the latter part maybe something we'll we'll talk about later um but they've been very invested in this idea of of the machine as progress and um speed and energy as a way of getting out of sort of provincial italian culture which is is very much harking back to sort of venice and um marinetti's belief is that is that italy is sort of living on its renaissance artistic past um, and the vorticists who are led by Wyndham Lewis who's a, a Canadian expat who, who comes into London um, he teams up with Ezra Pound who's an American expat who's also found a place in London um, and they take these ideas of vortex and, and energy and, and use it to construct um, an artistic aesthetic that's very interested in, in abstraction and um, all these kind of things and yeah, that becomes very complex then when when their dreams are sort of made a reality, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the initial aesthetic of the Vortices publication, uh, the publication famously is called Blast, and this was a title suggested by the painter uh, C.R.W. Nevinson, um, who shortly after fell out with Lewis because he explicitly attached the Rebel Arts Centre, Wyndham Lewis's group, um, to the futurists and Wyndham Lewis didn't like that and he actually wanted to move the group away from being seen as like a sort of British version of the futurists. Um, I mean Lewis shared the Italian futurists kind of frustration with culture being stuck in the past. Um, the manifesto in the first issue of Blast had a list of things that were to be blasted and a list of things to be blessed uh, which is a lot more comical than the Italian futurists um one of the things that he, he blesses is hairdressers and that <laughs> <laughs> which it's hard to imagine marinetti doing but yes. um you know there's there's a sort of attempt to move away from this like quite politically isolationist post-fantasy eclair or decadent culture you know queen victoria has died in 1901 the edwardian period there's still this kind of legacy of things like william morris's arts and crafts movement and the vortices really want to move away from that um, but their take on mechanisation and the machine sits somewhere between the futurists' uh, excitement and embracing of the machine and the German expressionists' uh, you know, real pessimism about industrialisation. Um, you know, Lewis was still sort of seeking to differentiate vorticism uh, by attacking the futurists, uh, but Marinetti gave a recital at a vorticist event uh, in London in March 1914, as late as that, to raise money for Lewis's Rebel Arts Centre. Um, 
But, you know, soon these these cultural battles were dwarfed by the actual battle the Vorticists were exhibiting um, in London, had major exhibition at the time of the Franz Ferdinand assassination. Um, and the war kind of radically changed their their output. Yeah, I, I think it's it's important to, to note that, that even the word war carried different meanings in 1914 to today. So if we think back to 1914, there, there hasn't been a war in Europe for almost 45 years. It's the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. So when Marinetti and various of his followers are, are talking about glorifying war, what they're really doing is equating it with the idea of revolution, that they want the destruction of the old order and, and that that will bring about a new utopian order. And that's taken up by various futurist painters in an aesthetic sense, but it's quite divorced from political realities. Um, and as, to be frank, increasing numbers of, of futurists and vorticists are killed off during the course of the war, the attitude shifts quite dramatically. Um, and Lewis himself starts out by painting these very aggressive, abstract pictures of war. Um, but as, as, his, as he, his attitude changes, he, he moves towards producing more sort of realist paintings for a period of time in the latter part of the war. So you can see even in, in what he's painting, the way that he succumbs to this disillusionment. Um, yeah, I mean, you see some very interesting changes in the Vorticist group, even though Blast only lasts two issues. Mm -hmm. um, the first issue of Blast, um, like we said, has a sort of, you know, sort of simultaneously serious and non-serious attitude to um, kind of societal changes. And yeah, certainly there's none of the, really of the revolutionary fervour you get from the Italian futurists or especially from the Russian futurists who we've discussed on, on another show. Um, and, you know, the first issue of Blast especially is characterised by a reaction against um, romanticism. So Ford Maddox Huffer, or Ford Maddox Ford, as he's also known, uh, Rebecca West didn't sign the manifesto, but they appeared in the first issue because of they had a sort of anti-romantic attitude in their writing. Uh, one of the most interesting things politically in the first issue of, of Blast is... Um, a short kind of manifesto entitled A Word of Advice to Suffragettes, saying, In destruction, as in other things, stick to what you understand. We make you a present of our votes, only leave works of art alone. You might someday destroy a good picture by accident. Uh, now, of course, this is a very different attitude to the Italian futurists who suggested, you know, just destroying all the kind of great masterpieces of the Renaissance. Uh, it's a reference to the suffragette Mary Richardson attacking the rope be Venus by Velazquez in the National Gallery in 1914. Uh, but again, you know, the outbreak of war means that these concerns become kind of secondary. The second issue of Blast, um, on the suggestion of the painter Edward Wadsworth, is their war number. Um, and Wyndham Lewis, I think, wrote most of the material in the issue actually pertaining to the war. So his editorial about the war itself is quite interesting. Lewis writes, When we say that Germany stands for romance, this must be qualified in some way. Official Germany stands for something intellectual, and that is traditional poetry in the romantic spirit. But unofficial Germany has done more for the movement that this paper was founded to propagate, and for all branches of contemporary activity in science and art, than any other country. It would be the absurdest ingratitude on the part of artists to forget this. Um, he's talking particularly about the influence of Nietzsche, I think, without whom the vortices are kind of unimaginable. 
Um, but he also spoke of the absolute necessity to resist and definitely end this absurd aggression from the centre of Europe. Um, so most of the, the war writing here was about Lewis, who also attacked the Kaiser for the Kaiser's opposition to Cubism and German Expressionism, um, two of the main kind of early 20th century avant-garde art movements. Um, and, you know, despite Lewis's contempt for women, which comes up a lot in his later works, his novels written after the war, uh, and, you know, the combat at this point being seen as largely a male thing, there were quite a lot of women present. Um, Jessica Dismore, Dorothy Shakespeare, Helen Sanders, all featured in Blast. Um, and very notable in the war issue is an obit obituary for the sculptor uh, Henri Gaudiabreschka, who was killed in the trenches at Neuville-Saint-Vast, in June 1915 at the age of 23. Um, the deaths of Gaudia Bresca and the philosopher T. E. Hume in 1917 uh, radically changed the Vortices' attitude to the war. Um, the experiences of um, Nevinson, who we mentioned earlier, who was kind of around Lewis and obviously fell out with him, are also quite instructive. Like Nevinson worked in the Friends Ambulance Unit um, and he was incredibly disturbed by his work tending to wounded British and French soldiers, you know, new types of wounds that were brought about by horrific new technology. Um, the First World War, of course, is the first time that tanks are used and they actually they break down in the mud. Um, so Nevinson worked with these soldiers. Um, his earlier work showed this sort of distorted aesthetic of cubism and futurism, uh, things like La Mitrailleuse in 1915, which shows the troops in the trenches. But like Lewis, he painted in a more realistic fashion um, after seeing more of the war. Um, Aerial combat became central to his work, especially after he became an official war artist in 1917. Um, but the military experiences of Wyndham Lewis, the deaths I've mentioned, other people around the group like David Bomberg and William Roberts, uh, all lead the kind of vortices to basically collapse as a movement by, by 1919. If they ever existed as a sort of cohesive movement, there's, there's, there is a debate about to what extent it's just Wyndham Lewis um, trying to cobble a group together, but... but as you say, various of the writers featured in the first number of Blast didn't sign the Blast Manifesto. There's a story that um, he found Rebecca West's short story in a drawer at Ford Maddox Ford's house and sent her a letter saying, can I use my story, the, your story in, in, in my publication? And she wrote back to say, uh, OK, sure. But she didn't seem to have much of a clue what he was um, intending to do with it. Um, I, th I think one interesting thing about Lewis is that along with... Ford Maddox Ford, he's he's one of very few of those literary modernists we would deem canonical to have actually had combat experience. It was more likely that writers followed the Nevinson in um, taking on non-combat roles like ambulance driving, um, war reporting, um, being official war artists, that kind of thing. But most of what we sort of deem to be texts of literary modernism in the 20s come out of the civilian experience of war. So there's an immediate tension set up between those who experienced frontline combat and those who observed it from a distance and sought to write about it in different ways. So that leads us very nicely on to the war poets. Um, now, you know, I think the, the, the war poetry that came out of the trenches uh, is the most familiar cultural legacy of the First World War. Um, it's often been taught in schools. Um, I did um, my GCSE English literature exam in the mid to late 90s. Uh, we studied Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, Rupert Brooke and others. 
Um, we also went on a very moving trip to the First World War battlefields in Belgium and France and saw a number of the memorials. Um, so I'm going to open this section by reading uh, one of the most famous and familiar uh, First World War poems. I think a lot of our listeners will know this already, but this is um, Wilfred Owen's Dolce et Decorum Est. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hacks, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched to sleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dolce et decorum est. Pro Patria Mori, and the volume in which I'm reading that from, up to the up to the line of death, the War Poets, 1914 to 18, signs that off with Wilfred Owen, killed in action, 1918, which sets up perfectly how this poem has been framed as a sort of cultural artifact. That it's the tr- the experience of the trench poets is is heard as a sort of voice of protest that that these have access to a genuine experience of what the more the war means they can cut through the the sort of patriotic cant of civilian ignorance and and they can tell us what it's really like um and the last the last line dolce et decorum est pro patria mori is of course a latin phrase from the roman poet horace which means it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country um which is obviously delivered with a, a huge dose of bitter irony um as a way of, of finishing off that poem um I think it's it's interesting to put Owen into context. The poetry of the First World War changes quite drastically over the course of the four years. So we start out with poets like Rupert Brooke, um, Julian Grenfell, Charles Sawley, who go out with a particular set of expectations of what the war is going to be like, that it's, it's going to be like the classical heroic battles that they've read about in, in Homer, um, and the reality, of course, is, is very different and, and disillusionment gradually sets in um, and you get poets, later poets like Owen, um, Siegfried Sassoon, who take these sort of forms of, of the earlier poets um, and use them to, to, to make these protest statements. Um, I think it's interesting that, that this poem is often read as a as a straightforward anti-war poem i mean that that's clearly the prevailing sentiment and i think we're we're meant to be 
disgusted by the detail um, in which he describes what's what's happening. Um, but there is there is one interesting line which which recalls some of the earlier poetry of the war when when Owen says, "Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of of fumbling." Um, when Siegfried Sassoon read the manuscript of this poem, he was um, in a sort of convalescing in a in a hospital alongside Wilfred Owen. Um, Sassoon had made a, a an anti-war protest in which he'd written to his superiors and and called for an end to the hypocrisy of the war. And instead of being prosecuted for treason, his friend um, and fellow writer Robert Graves had got him put into a hospital for shell shock. Um, so Sassoon was was in this hospital with Owen and he read the manuscript draft of Dolce et Decorum Est and he underlined the word ecstasy and put a question mark next to it. Um, and I think the, the sentiment of that is how can a gas attack produce ecstasy, you know, which has clear religious connotations and um, there's an, there's an exhilaration there that recalls Rupert Brooke's attitude to war. Um, and I think it's interesting that in a poem that is all about the complicity of language in violence, the way that these big concepts like duty, patriotism, are being used to recruit and send innocent young men to their death, um, that Owen is also in indicating a sort of almost perverse reveling in language at the same time you know that the that there might be something sensuous about this poem that maybe maybe makes its message more complex than than we might at first assume and I think it it indicates to us that we can't separate this poetry into sort of explicitly pro-war patriotic poetry or explicitly anti-war protest poetry the the attitude to the war as it was unfolding was was a very complex thing and it was possible for someone like Owen to be very distressed by the reality of war and very angry about the way that the government was running the war, but at the same time to be slightly attracted to the intimacy of being in the trenches with other men, um, the the kind of homosocial bonds that that allowed him to make. Um, and also what it enabled him to do with poetry. He's a poet. After all, I suppose it seems like a banal point to make. No, but there's a big difference between the writers who were kind of capital P poets and the writers who kind of wrote poetry because it was probably the best form to express their experiences. You know, you, there's no way you could write a novel in the trenches. This is not going to happen. You could write poetry. And one of the poets said, it might have been Julian Grenfell, um, talked about, you know, you could write each line of poetry as if it's your last um, because, you know, it might well be. It was very possible that the next day you'd go over the top and you would you would be killed. Um, I mean, poetry was good form because paper was scarce. You know, people could remember lines of poetry until they had a chance to write them. Uh, they're also good to send back home to people. Um, one poet, F.W. Harvey, wrote in the Prisoner of War camps in Krefeld and Gutersloh and posted them home from there. They're immediately published. They met with great success. They were full of longing for home, friends and family. Uh, one poet called Geoffrey Daly, who was shot down and killed in February 1918, wrote his poems in the air. Um, so there's an immediacy of that form that, you know, kind of can capture all sorts of experiences. has been very important in 
shaping our memory of the war. So I've just found the, the line I wanted from uh, C.H. Sawley, who was one of the poets who died in 1915, age 20, and he wrote, You will notice that most of what I've written is as hurried and angular as the handwriting, written out at different times and dirty with my pocket, but I've had no time for the final touch, nor seem likely to have for some time. Um, so that's very interesting. I mean, war poetry actually continued to be published until... Uh, near the beginning of the Second World War, David Jones's volume, In Parentheses, was published by Faber in 1937. That's the last new volume of World War I poetry to, to emerge. Um, I mean, I think some of the most interesting um, poetic um, artefacts of the war actually come from people who had sort of survived from the Victorian period. Um, Thomas Hardy's Men Who March Away was published during the very first week of the war. Hardy is not a figure you would really associate with the First World War at all. Um, but somebody I do want to uh, talk about briefly um, is not somebody who we're going to talk about a lot on this show, but uh, Richard Kipling, um, who, of course, is you know seen as, in every sense, a conservative figure, like formally and uh, politically, uh, you know, obviously very, very imperialist. His life and work is very bound up with the British Empire and particularly India. Um, but, you know, Kipling, um, you know, I think was brought up on people like Alfred Lord Tennyson, his poem about the Charge of the Light Brigade. Um, and, you know, at the start was one of the people who was at least sort of, you know, ambivalent about the war and thought it might be good for art. But after his only son was killed at um, Luce in... Um, 1915. Uh, Kipling wrote this volume published, I think, in 1918 called Epitaphs of the War, uh, which included a few uh, incredibly bitter couplets. Um, there's one called Bombed in London, which sort of captures the fact that aerial bombing of London was a new phenomenon of the First World War. And he just writes, On land and sea I strove with anxious care to escape conscription. It was in the air. Uh, which is kind of funny, but also horrific, and it packs an awful lot into um, into a very small um, space. So the kind of emotional power that's possible with very condensed poetry, I think, really works to the um, writer's advantage. It makes it the perfect form of capturing this particular conflict. Yes, and I think that's another reason why the sonnet is such a popular form because you have the final couplet of the sonnet and you can achieve a similar effect, which is this sort of pithy, almost epigrammatic way of formulating your argument. And that's one of the things that's so tricky about the cultural literary legacy of this war is that on the one hand, you have uh, an avant-garde, abstract art expressionist response. And on the other hand, you have a turn back to very traditional forms, particularly with poetry. So there's a lot of interest in sonnets, in elegies, in ballads. Um, speaking of Kipling, a lot of a lot of poets writing at this time looked back to romanticism and poets like Keats, um, partly because Keats has a very evocative way of writing about the body, which obviously is very important in a war that's about the encounter of body and machine. Um, but also because they're going back to the romantic tradition of of pastoralism, of going into nature as a kind of consolation. Um, and for some poets, it provides that consolation. And, and for other poets, 
it, it doesn't. But there's an interesting return to traditional forms of mourning as well as trying to find new ways to articulate what the war was doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, as we've already touched on, the attitudes to the war kind of changed throughout. I think, you know, obviously the Battle of the Somme uh, is a huge turning point in attitudes towards the war from the public, but particularly the combatants themselves. Um, you know, the Somme is the largest battle on the Western Front. It's intended to hasten Allied victory. It's the first battle to fought with tanks, which didn't really work. Um, around 600,000 Allied troops were killed. In total, uh, just under 20,000 British soldiers on the first day. Um, so, you know, this seriously tests the support for the war. You know, there's already been conscientious objections, objections Quakers, munition strikes and the Red Clydesdale movement in Glasgow. Um, but at this point, like Winston Churchill starts to object to the way the battles are being fought. Lloyd George criticised the sort of attritional warfare. And um, the Battle of Passchendaele is um, is another big turning point. This is deeply controversial. 19, autumn 1917, Lloyd George called it senseless. And, you know, men literally drowned in mud. Um, about 100,000 people were killed, many more wounded or missing. Um, and uh, again, this is... This sort of contributes to, as we've talked about, Siegfried Sassoon's protests against the way the war is being conducted. Um, it kind of, you know, really kind of breaks down the patriotism that had replaced religion as the driving force for actions of great men during the 19th century. Um, and, you know, the war, po- this is reflected in the war poetry, you know, it becomes really brutal. Um, someone like Isaac Rosenberg uh, writes a poem uh, in which, you know, a wagon wheel crushes a dead soldier's face. And, um, you know, this is this is very, very new in, in kind of the canon of British war poetry. I think if there's if there's one image that that is perhaps the most evocative in, in First World War poetry, it's mud. And it's what mud means and what the experience of living in mud is. Um, and, and how that forces you to think about the body um as organic matter the one of the the examples that the psychologist wh rivers who is one of the first to write about shell shock and to try and think about how the war has been a traumatic experience he cites an example of a soldier who recalls waking up um at the end of a battle he's been knocked unconscious and he realizes that his face is um he's face down in 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 some mud and he starts to to get up and he realizes that what he's actually been face down in is the the semi decomposing body of a german soldier and this he then relives every night in in his nightmares um but that that anxiety about the way that the human body could just disappear that it could disintegrate that the mud becomes this almost sinister substance yeah absolutely and yeah passchendaele really kind of brings it into the Imagination. I'm just going to close our section on poetry with uh, with another epitaph from Kipling, which is called Common Form from 1918. And he simply says, if any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. So I want to move the conversation on from there to uh, the literature, the the kind of more long form writing that comes out of the war um, during the 1920s. So I want to talk here about... um, certain modernist writing, but also uh, memoir. Um, 
you know, modernism in Britain didn't really turn into the avant-garde in the same way as it did in Russia or Italy. Um, it doesn't really connect itself to an ideological project in the same way, like Wyndham Lewis uh, and Ezra Pound, of course, are kind of proto-fascists. But even then, you know, they don't really hook onto fascism until the 1930s. Um, and then you have someone like George Bernard Shaw, who's been writing for quite some time, who's part of the Fabian Society, so this kind of proto sort of liberal left kind of reformist uh, movement um, that the blast um, blast attacked Shaw quite a lot in their, their war number. Um, and you also get the emergence of T.S. Eliot and this kind of conservative cultural pessimism, which I think is maybe the dominant ideological strain in the 20s. Um, what you also get during this time uh, is you get a number of um, memoirs by women who uh, went to the front um, and you also get the uh, increasing recognition of shell shock, which is something that during the war has not been treated with the seriousness it deserves, quite famously. And it's only when there's a parliamentary commission on shell shock in 1922 that there's more of a recognition um, of its existence as a phenomenon and the sort of causes for it. Um, and it starts to feed into modernist literature. So I wondered if, Charlotte, you would like to um, to expand on that for our listeners. Yes, I mean, there's an interesting chronology to the way that the wartime experiences make their way into prose writing, um, which is that in the immediate years following the war, memoirs by combatants are not particularly prevalent. Partly that may be the result of publishers um, not wanting depressing work. They sort of said that society needed more uplifting stories and several um, soldiers, including the modernist Herbert Reed, were refused um, by publishers when suggesting memoirs. But the first... The first tranche of fiction, really, to to come out of the war is written by women. Um, And interestingly, one of the first books on shell shock is also written by a woman, which is Rebecca West's The Return of the Soldier. Um, Shell shock has a a very interesting history in this period of time. Um, It's something that when the war starts, there isn't any adequate medical definition of. Um, And it's something that the military struggles with as well. So when the term is first introduced in 1915, it's by a psychologist called Charles Myers, who publishes an article in The Lancet, which is a a medical journal. Um, And he coins the phrase shell shock because at this point he thinks that it has been caused by exposure to a shell explosion. So the the working logic is that a shell explodes nearby, this literally shakes the brain around inside your head, um, and there are then psychological consequences as a result of the brain knocking against the skull. And it quickly becomes clear that there isn't a always a physical cause, sometimes it's emotional. Um, and, and the army tries to grapple with this by introducing different definitions. So in 1915, they have two different ways of categorising soldiers who, for emotional reasons, aren't able to continue fighting. One of which is shell shock W, which stands for wound. um, And that's when the breakdown can be directly attributed to enemy fire. And they also have a designation that's shell shock S, which stands for sickness, which is when it 
can't be linked to any physical cause. Um, and if you were diagnosed shell shock S, you didn't receive a pension, you weren't eligible for medals. Um, and there's that linguistic instability, I think, re reflects the uncertainty about what shell shock was and, and, and how it worked. Um, a couple of years later, in 1917, the army brings in a new term, which is not yet diagnosed nervous. So the diagnosis becomes a sort of admittance that it's not possible to diagnose what's wrong with this person. Um, and while, while the debates are raging about what it means in, in medical terms, Rebecca West publishes a book called The Return of the Soldier in 1918, which takes a case study of a shell-shocked soldier called Chris Baldry, who is invalided out of the war. He returns home to his wife and his cousin, Jenny, and Jenny narrates the story. Um, and the story is, is the process by which he comes to talk about what his shell shock means it's eventually traced back to some obscure childhood trauma so the book is in some ways it's a bit of a, a mess in in terms of what we would now understand post-traumatic stress um to entail but it's interesting that there's no clear distinction between medical text and literary text that, that literature is trying to figure out what shell shock means at the same time as as science is and sometimes you get examples of scientists reading literary texts like West's novel and using that to inform their theories so there's quite an interesting interplay there I think yeah I mean shell shock becomes more and more of a theme throughout the 20s um one one interesting story I want to talk about um is uh called Miss Ogilvy Finds Herself by Radcliffe Hall um, you know, there's kind of there's an emergence of a kind of independent women's literary sphere that happens after the First World War. Uh, obviously, women are granted suffrage in 1918. Uh, there's this idea of the new woman that comes out partly out of the widespread inclusion of women in the workplaces during and after the war. Um, and... Um, you know, the Bloomsbury set kind of emerged throughout the decade and um, that gives you uh, a lot more women's literature than ever before. It gives you literature that sort of incorporates like lesbian and queer and transgender perspectives. Um, and the Radcliffe Hall story, uh, obviously Radcliffe Hall is best known for writing The Well of Loneliness, which is a sort of canonical text for both lesbian and transgender literature. Um, but in Miss Ogilvy Finds Herself, uh, Hall writes about, you know, a woman whose only opportunity to find herself was, was in the war as the head of an ambulance unit in France for three years. Um, Ogilvy undergoes what Hall calls a sudden and paralysing change on returning to the UK and finding that people back home were unprepared to recognise her service. Uh, she finds that she misses the uniform and the comradeship, which also for her is tied to a kind of a feeling of... Um, inborn masculinity rather than a sort of socially constructed and socially demanded feminine one um, and she finds it particularly stifling to return home to Surrey uh, and having grown up in Surrey I can empathise um, but she goes back to Surrey where this sort of you know this newfound gender identity and this newfound kind of freedom meets this repressive small town gaze um, and people attribute her kind of post-war behaviour to shell shock which the you know central character really really struggles with um and again you know that um text obviously draws draws from from personal experiences um and you know and also some of the the memoirs that were being produced at this time yeah i think there's a a, 
a tension felt by a lot of female writers who revel in the economic and social freedoms that the war brings in terms of the fact that women can work, that they can move around in public spaces freely, um, they can write and, and publish and, and as ambulance drivers and nurses they can go and be near near the front um, and yet there is a, a slight I think guilt or bad conscience about the fact that these are the necessary circumstances in which that had to come about um, and also a sense that that it was difficult to claim ownership of some of these military experiences um, another memoir that that talks I think quite movingly about what the war does in terms of gender is Mary Borden's The Forbidden Zone which is published in 1929 um, and she's writing about what she saw um, in the military hospital that she works in behind the lines and she talks about how this entails a kind of dissolution of the category of gender itself she says there are no men here so why should I be a woman there are heads and knees and mangled testicles. There are chests with holes as big as your fist and pulpy thighs, shapeless. There are these things, but no men. So how could I be a woman here and not die of it? And I think there's quite a strong, I think there's quite a, a powerful, effective, moving sentiment there. Um, and there's also a lot of interesting history about the way that shell shock has the same symptoms as 19th century women who were diagnosed as hysteric so there was a lot of fear about what traumatic experiences in the war meant for masculinity um, that men were coming back paralyzed unable to speak um, stripped of their masculinity I suppose would be one way of, of writing about it um, and I think that was written about in very complex and, and sort of compelling ways by different writers. Absolutely. I don't know if you, there's anyone else you'd like to expand on before we uh, we move on to the final segment. Um, if not, then um, then we can talk about the sort of political changes in the nineteen twenties. Um, you know, there's there's a move away from World War One as literary paradigm. Um, you know, Britain obviously uh, continues uh, during the nineteen twenties to think about its role as an imperial power. Uh, obviously, the role of um, the Anzac forces, Australia, New Zealand, is sort of well acknowledged in the memory of the First World War. The role of soldiers from India and the Commonwealth, a lot less so. Um, and, you know, the First World War has been a serious test on British resources in kind of managing its colonial commitments, uh, particularly in Ireland. Obviously, Ireland emerges as a big political question after 1916 and um, the partition happens in the early 1920s. Um, Britain doesn't come anywhere near as close to a kind of communist or fascist um, government as most other European countries. The general strike in 1926 is the closest it comes. Um, two years after the first Labour government is formed, British Union of Fascists doesn't emerge until after 1929, uh, when, of course, the Great Depression happens. And that seriously changes the paradigm in which uh, artists and writers, cultural figures are working, um, partly because of the rise of fascism in Germany. Um, 
So British sort of intellectuals become refocused about that. You know, people like Aldous Huxley and Brave New World become more concerned with a potentially nightmarish future rather than this nightmarish recent past. Um, and there's this idea of this kind of final failure of Enlightenment liberalism, um, which I think becomes tied up with the end of the First World War, but also the one that increasingly obvious it's been coming. I mean, there's a very interesting um, premonition in Blast, actually, that I forgot to mention earlier, um, where Lewis... Um, can I find my my quote? Lewis basically says, is this a war to end all wars? Um, you know, we may well need another one in 20 or 30 years' time, which, of course, is um, incredibly prescient. So, of course, the Second World War um, and then the, um, the possibility of nuclear holocaust become very important for kind of British uh, cultural and intellectual figures during the 40s and 50s. So it's only really um, later in the 20th century that people really return to the First World War and, um, you know, you get things like, oh, what a lovely war in 1969, Richard Attenborough, which is based on the conservative politician Alan Clark's diaries. Uh, and this is credited with starting the trend for unflattering portrayals of the sort of World War One top brass, which obviously go back far, far earlier, so Kipling and others. Um, and, of course, you get one of, you know, the most popular and most famous um, cult British cultural works about the First World War, which, of course, is Blackadder Goes Forth, um, which I think was probably the first cultural response to World War One that I ever got to know. Um, and it seemed fairly on the money to me, its portrayal of the dynamics of the war, you know, the sort of bumbling idiots that were running the campaign, um, you know, the sort of um, Hugh Laurie's character, you know, one of the other privates who's just from this sort of upper class background and just thinks the war is going to be a jolly good lark and, you know, learns the hard way that it's not, um, but only at the very end. Um, and I think Blackadder's explanation of the reasons for World War One are as convincing as any other. There's obviously a very striking scene where I think Baldrick asked Blackadder why the war is happening. And Blackadder just says it just became too much effort not to have a war. Uh, the tensions between sort of varying European powers were, were such that they just had to have a fight. And of course, they didn't realise either how bad it was going to be. Um, I mean, I talk about Blackadder um, because I think, you know, it's become so integral to the way the war is remembered in the UK. And um, I think, you know, friend of the show, Michael Gove, the um, conservative ed former Conservative Education Secretary, um, you know, when the 100th anniversary of the First World War came around four years ago, uh, he had a lot to say about the education policy on the war. Um, not so much on the way the war poets were taught in schools because they did as much to shape my conception of the war as, as something like Blackadder. Uh, but he, you know, he attacked left-wing academics for spreading myths about the First World War, part of this kind of ongoing Tory attempt to import these kind of wretched American culture wars to UK universities. Uh, Gove also mentioned the monocled mutineer from 1986, which right-wing right newspapers at the time used as examples of the BBC's left-wing bias. Um, the BBC, um, the Conservative Party chairman at the time, a uh, friend of the show, Norman Tebbit, uh, claimed to be monitoring the BBC for such bias at the time. Um, Gove singled out uh, the historian Richard Evans, the uh, Regius Professor of History at Cambridge, because um, Evans had said that those who enlisted in 1914 were wrong to think they were defending freedom. Um, it's worth noting here that the Commonwealth and Indian soldiers I mentioned just now, who are often not talked about, were fighting for freedom that, of course, wasn't being given to them in their, their homelands. Um, but Gove also claimed that Blackadder blamed Britain for the war and exonerated Germany of the blame. Um, 
And um, I think that sort of taps into a kind of wider change in the way the war is being remembered that's come about in the last 20 years. So I'd just like to spend the last 10 minutes of the show talking about what we think some of the reasons for that might be. Yes, I think Gove is demonstrating a perhaps characteristically spectacular misunderstanding of um, the way that the war is is talked about by by historians. Um, One of the things that's consistent throughout, I think, almost all the writing that emerges from the war itself is that it isn't a case of one side is to blame. That's the side that obviously was put forward in, in British government propaganda at the time and clearly in recent years as well um but it wasn't as straightforward as german aggression um and british sort of noble defense of plucky belgium um which was a neutral country that that germany invaded without provocation um you know i think i think the the understanding now is is that the the alliances um the imperial um divvying up of uh, the world according to sort of European nation states, that this was all going to come to a sort of boiling point. Um, Not only that, but there was considerable unrest within Britain in the years running up to the war. We tend to look back and think there was this halcyon golden summer um, leading up to 1914, and, and then the war came out of nowhere because... Germany did this terrible thing and and actually the 20 years or so leading up to 1914 have been incredibly embattled there have been Irish nationalist bombings in London there have been anarchist bombings in London the women's uh, suffrage campaign obviously has has accelerated and taken on a more aggressive tone um there's been one of the Brit- biggest strikes in in british history in in 1913 workers rights movements um are becoming increasingly volatile in 1912 1913 so there's an argument to be made that actually the outbreak of the war was expedient for the british government because it took all of this internal dissent and directed it outwards at a force that it could say was the enemy um and this diffused quite a quite a febrile and revolutionary atmosphere gave them an excuse to kind of clamp down on internal left-wing dissidents as yes well. as 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 always happens in these kind of situations um and what what gove was responding to in particular was a renewed emphasis with the centenary coming up on other experiences of the war so non-combatants women on the home front um conscientious objectors pacifists um, all of which are vital to understanding what the war meant for British culture but which obviously don't fit um, the prevailing narrative and and I would say don't even fit the the Blackadder narrative you know there is some truth to um, the the class dimensions of that which is the infantry were being led by incompetent generals Um, but I think even now, our understanding of the war is very stereotypically that of an infantry officer on the Western Front. Um, and we're very wedded to a particularly English vision of the war. Um, and I think we often forget that it's a world war. The, the first shot by a British soldier in 1914 was actually fired in Togoland, um, which maybe we, we wouldn't expect. And, and I think also with, with the armistice, um, 
obviously immediately in our minds. I think it's important to remember that fighting between British and German troops continued after the 11th of November in East Africa. So it's we can't make it this tidy European um, spat. Absolutely. I mean, there's a quite European conception of world that feeds into the, the Great War. But yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, you know, there's also a continuation of the war against civilians in Germany after November 18, because there's a continued blockade. Uh, naval blockade. Um, just for the last five minutes of the show, you're listening to Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Just for the last five minutes, I want to talk about um, the sort of shift I mentioned at the top of the show, whereby uh, there's you know been a sort of cultural demand for remembrance to be much more kind of overt. Um, I think this has become an interesting talking point for people on the left recently. Um, because it does feel like something has changed in the last 20 years. And I think that is a lot to do with the last veterans dying out and nobody being left to express their personal memory of the trenches, uh, which has left the way open for people who want to do so to recast the war as something heroic and attempt to rebuild a national myth out of it. I just want to very quickly read a passage from um, Joe Kennedy's recent book, Authentocrats, in which he says... Nevertheless, World War II, with its helpful reputation as a just war in which we saved the world from Germans, is in a distinct fashion, discreet fashion, poppyism's master signifier. Other conflicts luxuriate in their association with it. Ever since its dead were added to village war memorials across the country, the, inevitably, the invariably larger number of names listed above them, the glorious dead of the Great War, are taken to have been lost to a cause comparably noble to that of fighting Hitler. Uh, and yeah, and I think that speaks to the way that, you know, as we've said, the the causes and reason for the First World War, uh, you know, defy easy summary and easy categorization, easy definition. Um, I think that point about um, the soldiers not being around anymore is very important. Like Wilfred Owen, uh, in between the time when he was invalided out of the army and his return to the front and his death, used to carry photos of men who'd been mutilated at the front to show to anyone who glorified the war. Um, but what we have now that we didn't have kind of 20 years ago is um, a large number of veterans who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq um, and, you know, to the large number of veterans and war dead that there weren't. 20 years ago with the exception of um, people who fought in the Falklands and even then like Simon Weston who was horrifically burnt in the Falklands is often the face of the Falklands war and so there was much more of an emphasis on the horrors of war rather than the sort of patriotic glory of it. And I think it's also um, established a very fixed idea in our minds of what war is that it's it's two opposing armies facing off across no man's land set in in trenches um and i think i'm right in saying that britain has never not been at war since world war ii um and i i think our obsession with thinking about war as playing out in this particular way as modelled on the First and Second World Wars is preventing us from having conversations about the kind of proxy wars that the British Army seems to be constantly fighting in other places. So I think a useful conversation to have once the centenary is out of the way and, and the act of commemoration is is um, respectfully engaged in is to think about what the value is of continually going back to this war in the way that it haunts our, our imaginations still um, and to think about what actually we're doing remembering this war and and think about the way that it's it's shaping our attitude to our past but also the way that Britain continues to fight wars today. 
Yeah, well, I think that's an excellent place to um, conclude our conversation. Um, certainly, it does feel to me like the kind of what Joe Kennedy calls poppyism uh, in his book, um, which if you want to go on Twitter and look at the giant Poppy Watch account, you'll find some sort of simultaneously hilarious and terrifying examples of um, of really kind of overt um, remembrance, which actually, to me, in their ostentatiousness, actually, you know, having read the war poets um, and read the Blast Group and, and all of the others actually strikes me as being kind of a bit disrespectful, actually. Certainly having been to the Menengate in Ypres and seen the last post be performed in all its kind of sober solemnity, that um, that feels to me far more appropriate. I think it's a classic way of, of using the idea of respect to shut down dissent. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's absolutely true. And I think... Um, as you say, in the kind of years after the centenary as the war maybe fades back into memory, um, we'll come up with a different attitude to it. Um, I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Very happy to have had Charlotte Jones talking to me today about the cultural memory of the First World War. I'll be back next week with a show about how the war has been uh, recorded and remembered in Germany. Thanks for listening. Take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.